Roughing It in the Bush by Susanna Moody Chapter 26 A Change in Our Prospects This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty Roughing It in the Bush by Susanna Moody Chapter 26 A Change in Our Prospects the future flower lies folded in the bud its beauty colour fragrance graceful form carefully shrouded in that tiny cell till time and circumstance and sun and shower expand the embryo blossom and it bursts its narrow cerements lifts its blushing head rejoicing in the light and dew of heaven but if the canker-worm lies coiled around the heart of the bud the summer sun and dew visit in vain the seared and blighted flower. During my illness a kind neighbour, who had not only frequently come to see me, but had brought me many nourishing things, made by her own fair hands, took a great fancy to my second daughter, who, lively and volatile, could not be induced to remain quiet in the sick-chamber. The noise she made greatly retarded my recovery, and Mrs. H. took her home with her, as the only means of obtaining for me necessary rest. During that winter, and through the ensuing summer, I only received occasional visits from my little girl, who, fairly established with her new friends, looked upon their house as her home. This separation, which was felt as a great benefit at the time, greatly estranged the affections of the child from her own people. She saw us so seldom that she almost regarded us, when she did meet, as strangers, and I often deeply lamented the hour when I had unwittingly suffered the threefold cord of domestic love to be unravelled by absence, and the flattering attentions which fed the vanity of a beautiful child, without strengthening her moral character. Mrs. H., whose husband was wealthy, was a generous, warm-hearted girl of eighteen, lovely in person and fascinating in manners, and still too young to have any idea of forming the character of a child, she dressed the little creature expensively, and by constantly praising her personal appearance, gave her an idea of her own importance which it took many years to eradicate. It is a great error to suffer a child, who has been trained in the hard school of poverty and self-denial, to be transplanted suddenly into the hotbed of wealth and luxury. The idea of the child being so much happier and better off blinds her fond parents to the dangers of her new situation, where she is sure to contract a dislike to all useful occupation, and to look upon scanty means and plain clothing as a disgrace. If the reaction is bad for a grown-up person, it is almost destructive to a child who is incapable of moral reflection. Whenever I saw little Addie, and remarked the growing coldness of her manner towards us, my heart reproached me for having exposed her to temptation. Still, in the eye of the world she was much better situated than she could possibly be with us. The heart of the parent could alone understand the change. So sensible was her father of this alteration, that the first time he paid us a visit he went and brought home his child. If she remains so long away from us, at her tender years, he said, she will cease to love us. All the wealth in the world would not compensate me for the love of my child. 
the removal of my sister rendered my separation from my husband doubly lonely and irksome. Sometimes the desire to see and converse with him would press so painfully on my heart that I would get up in the night, strike a light, and sit down and write him a long letter, and tell him all that was in my mind. And when I had thus unburdened my spirit, the letter was committed to the flames, and after fervently commending him to the care of the great father of mankind, I would lay down my throbbing head on my pillow beside our first-born son, and sleep tranquilly. It is a strange fact that many of my husband's letters to me were written at the very time when I felt those irresistible impulses to hold communion with him. Why should we be ashamed to admit openly our belief in this mysterious intercourse between the spirits of those who are bound to each other by the tender ties of friendship and affection, when the experience of every day proves its truth? Proverbs, which are the wisdom of ages collected into a few brief words, tell us in one pithy sentence that, if we talk of the devil, he is sure to appear. While the name of a long-absent friend is in our mouth, the next moment brings him into our presence. How can this be, if mind did not meet mind, and the spirit had not a prophetic consciousness of the vicinity of another spirit kindred with its own? This is an occurrence so common that I never met with any person to whom it had not happened. Few will admit it to be a spiritual agency, but in no other way can they satisfactorily explain its cause. If it were a mere coincidence, or combination of ordinary circumstances, it would not happen so often, and people would not be led to speak of the long absent always at the moment when they are just about to present themselves before them. My husband was no believer in what he termed my fanciful, speculative theories, yet at the time when his youngest boy and myself lay dangerously ill, and hardly expected to live, I received from him a letter, written in great haste, which commenced with this sentence, Do write to me, dear S., when you receive this. I have felt very uneasy about you for some days past, and am afraid that all is not right at home. Whence came this sudden fear? Why, at that particular time, did his thoughts turn so despondingly towards those so dear to him? Why did the dark cloud in his mind hang so heavily above his home? The burden of my weary and distressed spirit had reached him, and without knowing of our sufferings and danger, his own responded to the call. The holy and mysterious nature of man is yet hidden from himself. He is still a stranger to the movements of that inner life, and knows little of its capabilities and powers. A purer religion, a higher standard of moral and intellectual training, may in time reveal all this. Man still remains a half-reclaimed savage. The leaven of Christianity is surely working its way, but it has not yet changed the whole lump, or transformed the deformed into the beauteous child of God. Oh, for that glorious day! It is coming. The dark clouds of humanity are already tinged with the golden radiance of the dawn, but the sun of righteousness has not yet arisen upon the world with healing on his wings. The light of truth still struggles in the womb of darkness, and man stumbles on to the fulfillment of his sublime and mysterious destiny. This spring I was not a little puzzled how to get in the crops. I still continued so weak that I was quite unable to assist in the field, 
and my good old Jenny was sorely troubled with inflamed feet, which required constant care. At this juncture, a neighbouring settler, who had recently come among us, offered to put in my small crop of peas, potatoes, and oats, in all not comprising more than eight acres, if I would lend him my oxen to log up a large fallow of ten acres, and put in his own crops. Trusting to his fair dealing, I consented to this arrangement, but he took advantage of my isolated position, and not only logged up his fallow, but put in all his spring crops before he sowed an acre of mine. The oxen were worked down so low that they were almost unfit for use, and my crops were put in so late and with such little care that they all proved a failure. I should have felt this loss more severely had it happened in any previous year, but I had ceased to feel that deep interest in the affairs of the farm, from a sort of conviction in my own mind that it would not long remain my home. Jenny and I did our best in the way of hoeing and weeding, but no industry on our part could repair the injury done to the seed by being sown out of season. We therefore confined our attention to the garden, which, as usual, was very productive, and with milk, fresh butter, and eggs, supplied the simple wants of our family. Emilia enlivened our solitude by her company for several weeks during the summer, and we had many pleasant excursions on the water together. My knowledge of the use of the paddle, however, was not entirely without its danger. One very windy Sunday afternoon, a servant girl who lived with my friend Mrs. C. came crying to the house and implored the use of my canoe and paddles to cross the lake to see her dying father. The request was instantly granted, but there was no man upon the place to ferry her across, and she could not manage the boat herself. In short, had never been in a canoe in her life. The girl was deeply distressed. She said that she had got word that her father could scarcely live till she could reach Smithtown, that if she went round by the bridge she must walk five miles, while if she crossed the lake she could be home in half an hour. I did not much like the angry swell upon the water, but the poor creature was in such grief that I told her if she was not afraid of venturing with me, I would try and put her over. She expressed her thanks in the warmest terms, accompanied by a shower of blessings, and I took the paddles and went down to the landing. Jenny was very averse to my tempting providence, as she termed it, and wished that I might get back as safe as I went. However, the old woman launched the canoe for me, pushed us from the shore, and away we went. The wind was in my favour, and I found so little trouble in getting across that I began to laugh at my own timidity. I put the girl on shore and endeavoured to shape my passage home. But this, I found, was no easy task. The water was rough and the wind high and the strong current which runs through that part of the lake to the Smith Rapids was dead against me. In vain I laboured to cross this current. It resisted all my efforts and at each repulse I was carried farther down towards the rapids, which were full of sunken rocks and hard for the strong arm of a man to stem. To the weak hand of a woman their safe passage was impossible. I began to feel rather uneasy at the awkward situation in which I found myself placed, and for some time I made desperate efforts to extricate myself by paddling with all my might. I soon gave this up, 
and contented myself by steering the canoe in the path that it thought fit to pursue. After drifting down with the current for some little space, until I came opposite a small island, I put out all my strength to gain the land. In this I fortunately succeeded, and getting on shore I contrived to drag the canoe so far around the headland that I got her out of the current. All now was smooth sailing, and I joyfully answered old Jenny's yells from the landing that I was safe and would join her in a few minutes. This fortunate manoeuvre stood me in good stead upon another occasion, when crossing the lake some weeks after this, in company with a young female friend during a sudden storm. Two Indian women, heavily laden with their packs of dried venison, called at the house to borrow the canoe, to join their encampment upon the other side. It so happened that I wanted to send to the mill that afternoon, and the boat could not be returned in time without I went over with the Indian women and brought it back. My young friend was delighted at the idea of the frolic, and as she could both steer and paddle, and the day was calm and bright, though excessively warm, we both agreed to accompany the squaws to the other side and bring back the canoe. Mrs. Muskrat has fallen in love with a fine fat kitten, whom the children had called Buttermilk, and she begged so hard for the little puss that I presented it to her, rather marvelling how she would contrive to carry it so many miles through the woods, and she loaded with such an enormous pack, when, lo, the squaw took down the bundle, and, in the heart of the piles of dried venison, she deposited the cat in a small basket, giving it a thin slice of the meat to console it for its close confinement. Puss received the donation with piteous mews. It was evident that mice and freedom were preferred by her to venison and the honour of riding on a squaw's back. The squaws paddled us quickly across, and we laughed and chatted as we bounded over the blue waves, until we were landed in a dark cedar swamp, in the heart of which we found the Indian encampment. A large party were lounging around the fire, superintending the drying of a quantity of venison which was suspended on forked sticks. Besides the flesh of the deer, a number of muskrats were skinned, and extended as if standing bolt upright before the fire, warming their paws. The appearance they cut was most ludicrous. My young friend pointed to the muskrats as she sank down, laughing upon one of the skins. Old Snowstorm, who was present, imagined that she wanted one of them to eat, and very gravely handed her the unsavory beast, stick and all. "'Does the old man take me for a cannibal?' she said. "'I would as soon eat a child.' Among the many odd things cooking at that fire, there was something that had the appearance of a bullfrog. "'What can that be?' she said, directing my eyes to the strange monster. "'Surely they don't eat bullfrogs.' This sally was received by a grunt of approbation from Snowstorm, and though Indians seldom forget their dignity so far as to laugh, he for once laid aside his stoical gravity, and twirling the thing round with a stick, burst into a hearty peal. Mukaki! Indian eat mukaki? Ha <laughs> ha! Indian no eat mukaki. Frenchmen's eat his hind legs. They say the speckled beast much good. This no mukaki, the liver of deer, dried, very nice. Indian eat him. I wish him much joy of the delicate morsel, said the saucy girl, who was intent upon quizzing and examining everything in the camp. 
We had remained the best part of an hour, when Mrs. Muskrat laid hold of my hand, and leading me through the bush to the shore, pointed up significantly to a cloud, as dark as night, that hung loweringly over the bush. "'Thunder in that cloud! Get over the lake! Quick, quick, before it breaks!' Then, motioning for us to jump into the canoe, she threw in the paddles and pushed us from shore. We saw the necessity of haste, and both plied the paddle with diligence to gain the opposite bank, or at least the shelter of the island, before the cloud poured down its fury upon us. We were just in the middle of the current, when the first peal of thunder broke with startling nearness over our heads. The storm frowned darkly upon the woods, the rain came down in torrents, and there we were exposed to its utmost fury in the middle of a current too strong for us to stem. "'What shall we do? We shall be drowned,' said my young friend, turning her pale, tearful face towards me. "'Let the canoe float down the current till we get close to the island. Then run her into the land. I saved myself once before by this plan.' We did so, and were safe. But there we had to remain, wet to our skins, until the wind and the rain abated sufficiently for us to manage our little craft. "'How do you like being upon the lake in a storm like this?' I whispered to my shivering, dripping companion. "'Very well in romance, but terribly dull in reality. We cannot, however, call it a dry joke,' continued she, wringing the rain from her dress. "'I wish we were suspended over old snowstorm's fire with the bullfrog, for I hate a shower-bath with my clothes on. I took warning by this adventure, never to cross the lake again without a stronger arm than mine in the canoe, to steer me safely through the current. I received much kind attention from my new neighbour, the Reverend W. W., a truly excellent and pious clergyman of the English church. The good white-haired old man expressed the kindest sympathy in all my trials, and strengthened me greatly with his benevolent counsels and gentle charity. Mr. W. was a true follower of Christ. His Christianity was not confined to his own denomination, and every Sabbath his log cottage was filled with attentive auditors of all persuasions, who met together to listen to the word of life, delivered to them by a Christian minister in the wilderness. He had been a very fine preacher, and though considerably turned of seventy, his voice was still excellent, and his manner solemn and impressive. His only son, a young man of twenty-eight years of age, had received a serious injury in the brain by falling upon a turf-spade from a loft window when a child, and his intellect had remained stationary from that time. Poor Harry was an innocent child. He loved his parents with the simplicity of a child, and all who spoke kindly to him he regarded as friends. Like most persons of his cast of mind, his predilection for pet animals was a prominent instinct. He was always followed by two dogs, whom he regarded with especial favour. The moment he caught your eye, he looked down admiringly upon his four-footed attendants, patting their sleek necks and murmuring, "'Nice dogs! Nice dogs!' Harry had singled out myself and my little ones as great favourites. He would gather flowers for the girls, and catch butterflies for the boys, while to me he always gave the title of dear aunt. It also happened that one fine morning I wanted to walk a couple of miles through the bush, to spend the day with Mrs. C. 
but the woods were full of the cattle belonging to the neighbouring settlers, and of these I was terribly afraid. Whilst I was dressing the little girls to accompany me, Harry W. came in with a message from his mother. Oh, thought I, here is Harry W. He will walk with us through the bush and defend us from the cattle. The proposition was made, and Harry was not a little proud of being invited to join our party. We had accomplished half the distance without seeing a single hoof, and I was beginning to congratulate myself upon our unusual luck, when a large red ox, maddened by the stings of the gadflies, came headlong through the brush, tossing up the withered leaves and dried moss with his horns, and making directly towards us. I screamed to my champion for help, but where was he? running like a frightened chipmunk along the fallen timber, shouting to my eldest girl at the top of his voice, "'Run, Katie, run! The bull! The bull! Run, Katie! The bull! The bull!' leaving us poor creatures far behind in the chase. The bull, who cared not one fig for us, did not even stop to give us a passing stare, and was soon lost among the trees, while our valiant knight never stopped to see what had become of us, but made the best of his way home. So much for taking an innocent for a guard. The next month most of the militia regiments were disbanded. My husband's services were no longer required at B, and he once more returned to help to gather in our scanty harvest. Many of the old debts were paid off by his hard-saved pay, and though all hope of continuing in the militia service was at an end, our condition was so much improved that we looked less to the dark than to the sunny side of the landscape. The potato crop was gathered in, and I had collected my store of dandelion roots for our winter supply of coffee, when one day brought a letter to my husband from the governor's secretary, offering him the situation of sheriff of the V district. Though perfectly unacquainted with the difficulties and responsibilities of such an important office, my husband looked upon it as a gift sent from heaven, to remove us from the sorrows and poverty with which we were surrounded in the woods. Once more he bade us farewell, but it was to go and make ready a home for us that we should no more be separated from each other. Heartily did I return thanks to God that night for all his mercies to us, and Sir George Arthur was not forgotten in those prayers. From B my husband wrote to me to make what haste I could in disposing of our crops household furniture, stock, and farming implements, and to prepare myself and the children to join him on the first fall of snow that would make the roads practicable for sleighing. To facilitate this object, he sent me a box of clothing to make up for myself and the children. For seven years I had lived out of the world entirely. My person had been rendered coarse by hard work and exposure to the weather. I looked double the age I really was, and my hair was already thickly sprinkled with grey. I clung to my solitude. I did not like to be dragged from it to mingle in gay scenes, in a busy town, and with gaily dressed people. I was no longer fit for the world. I had lost all relish for the pursuits and pleasures which are so essential to its votaries. I was contented to live and die in obscurity. My dear Amelia rejoiced, like a true friend in my changed prospects, and came up to help me to cut clothes for the children, and to assist me in preparing them for the journey. I succeeded in selling off our goods and chattels much better than I expected. 
my old friend Mr. W., who was a newcomer, became the principal purchaser, and when Christmas arrived I had not one article left upon my hands save the bedding, which it was necessary to take with us. THE MAGIC SPELL The magic spell, the dream is fled, the dream of joy sent from above. The idol of my soul is dead, and naught remains but hopeless love. The song of birds, the scent of flowers, the tender light of parting day, unheeded now the tardy hours, steal sadly, silently away. But welcome now the solemn night, when watchful stars are gleaming high, for though thy form eludes my sight, I know thy gentle spirit's nigh. O oh, dear one, now I feel thy power, tis sweet to rest when toil is o'er, but sweeter far that blessed hour when fond hearts meet to part no more. J. W. D. M. End of chapter 26 Recorded in Toronto, Ontario by Moira Fogarty December 2010